Recovery Elevator, episode 438. I needed a lot of help to quit drinking. I did, and everybody needs help to depart from an addiction. And I asked for help to the universe, and I got it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have something different lined up. Instead of one interviewee, we've got a panel of sober rock stars who have been kicking ass and taking names in this field for a while now. You guys are going to love it. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. Listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, today has already been a good day. Now, before we get any further, let's hear from Athletic Greens. Thank you to our newest partner, Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens daily. I gave AG1 a try because I noticed that I was taking multiple supplements a day and I was searching for something that took care of my immune system as well as gut health all in one. I'm training for another marathon and I take AG1 in the morning before getting my run in and it makes me feel like I'm ready to conquer the day. I'm a busy working mom and it gives me such peace of mind knowing that I'm helping my body by providing it with all of the nutrients that it needs in a day. I've been taking AG1 for two months now and I have noticed how good I feel throughout the day and how I don't immediately need caffeine upon waking up. All you have to do is mix one scoop of AG1 with water and voila, your cells will be grateful. One daily serving of AG1 contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash recovery. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash recovery. Check it out. Listeners, I want to say thank you for supporting our sponsors. Athletic Greens sent me some of their product a couple months ago, and I will admit, after taking their product for a couple days, I had sustained energy without the crash later in the day. Okay, let's get started. Today, let's talk expectations and how this fits with drinking. Since I like it when things are simple, let's dumb this down. Less expectations in life equals less drinking. More expectations in life equals more drinking. May I be even bold enough to say that zero expectations in life equals zero drinking. No, I cannot accurately say that, but it makes one ponder what a life of pure curiosity, openness, and non-expecting would be like. I wish we could ask Rumi. So in reality, we are full of expectations, both for ourselves and other people. Top of that list is we expect happiness in a world where nothing is guaranteed. We can already see a fracture. Now let's not be too hard on ourselves. Since birth, we have been conditioned through adverts, television, Instagram ads, that any discomfort represents failure and a certain product, drink, or pill will end the suffering. However, this pedagogy is fucked because it's not even close to how the real world works. Again, we have been conditioned to expect joy or happiness, even demand it, because we find ourselves in human life. But that's not how the universe works, even if you have a trust fund. So here's the watermelon-sized seed that I want to plant with you today. Let it all go. Let go of all expectations, especially the expectations you have for yourself. Let's tap into last week's episode now for a moment. 
No need to do work on your expectations for other people because once you address your inner expectations for yourself, you'll find that 100% of people in your outside world are meeting your expectations because you have none. Let's cover happiness for a moment. Happiness is an energetic front that makes a stop when conditions are right. Sadness is also an energetic vibrational front that pays a visit when conditions are right. True, you can expect happiness to arrive from time to time, but don't forget the lost boys with names of despair, playfulness, unworthiness, and hopeful. Expecting happiness 24-7 is the same as pulling Screech from the grave for another run at Say by the Bell. It's not happening. A day filled with expectations is a day mirrored in discomfort because it's not in line with how the universe works. Insert Murphy's Law. Okay, so how do we let expectations go? It's impossible. Don't even try. All you can do is become aware that you are expecting something different for yourself, for other people, or for how the world works. The last 34 words were important. Now let me give you an example of how this has looked in my life. Growing up, my dad was a machine. He wore a suit and tie to work Monday through Saturday, and when he got home, it was an endless quest of house projects and errands. I love my dad. Great man, great father. But similar to how you are not your parents, I'm not my dad. However, there was always this inner expectation for myself to be doing 24-7, similar to my father. Now, I recall sitting down a couple months ago to read a book at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Once I began reading, the inner voice was like, yo, yo, Paul, what are you doing? Nope, get up and either A, get back to work or stay in the fence in the backyard, you slack-jawed, wily piece of shit. Now, my recovery work that day was to continue reading the book, even as the unprotected wood planks in my backyard received additional UV rays. Side note, the book I was reading that day was addiction guru Dr. Gabra Mate's latest book, the myth of normal. In a sense, I was still working since I was highlighting passages which I have read on this podcast. Side side note, I do now have five gallons of stain in my garage for the fence, yet I'm still expecting somebody else to do it. Oh, expectations and the brutal role they can play in our lives led by the thinking mind. Speaking of, Thank you, God, for giving me a thinking mind that seems to wage a full-scale war on all theaters of my body about 49% of my life. If it were 50 to 51% of my life, I'd be toast. Okay, so thank you, universe, for giving me a thinking mind which allows me to regroup for just enough time to make it another day. After all, it is just one day at a time, with time being an illusion. Without alcohol, and only without alcohol, can I manage the thinking mind and the expectations it presents. Yes, I do experience joy in my life, sometimes lots of it. However, when I do encounter an expectation brought forth by a thought that doesn't match up with happiness, I sing the Beach Boys song, Wouldn't It Be Nice? But then I do my best to accept whatever the outcome is. Listeners, so much of this sobriety journey is deconditioning, deconstructing, and uncoupling at the neural level. As a society, we are expected to live and accept our conditions. Michael Luther King, born January 15, 1929, who later changed his name to Martin Luther King, said, Nope, I do not accept your expectations. And listeners, I can tell you, I'm probably 500 to 600 more spam or political phone calls away from throwing my phone to the nearest body of water. Because what do they expect me to do? 
Here's a great quote from Thomas Merton about expectations and relationships. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Expectations are limitations. Expectations in the self are major limitations. And here's a fun line from Richard Bach. Argue for your limitations and sure enough, they will be yours. I got one more quote for you from Ray Wiley Hubbard that we're going to unpack more next week. The quote is, the days in which my gratitude exceed my expectations are really good days. Another reason why expectations are dangerous is it throws gratitude right out the window. We also expect the earth to keep providing the natural resources needed for our survival, which are never guaranteed. We definitely need to approach sunshine, fresh drinking water, clean air, and shelter from a stance of gratitude, opposed to expecting them to be delivered to us because we deserve them. And your ear was probably expecting this one. Expectations are future resentments on slow boil. I hope you enjoyed the intro today on expectations. It's powerful stuff in my opinion. So for today's interview, again, we have a panel. We have myself, Eric, from the One You Feed podcast. We have Laura Cathart, who is the author of the best-selling book, Stash. And hosting the panel, we have Jillian from the Sober Powered Podcast. But before we get there, we need to hear from a sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from our panel. My favorite play is called Dear Evan Hansen. There's a song in it called, Does Anybody Have a Map? The song outlines how nobody knows what they're doing in life, and we're all just trying our best, winging it and hoping things go well when we sometimes feel so lost. I love this song. It reminds me that I'm not alone. It reminds me that it's not just me who struggles with decision making. There's no manual for being a human, no map or key. We have to get to know ourselves and figure out what's best for us. For me, having a therapist has allowed me to raise my awareness and be honest about my shortcomings. I need an outside perspective to see things differently, and therapy has provided just that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot elevator. Welcome to the show, Laura, Eric, and Paul. I thought for anyone that doesn't know any of us, we could take a moment to go around and just introduce ourselves. Laura, do you want to start us off? I would love to. Thank you, Jill. I'm Laura Cathcart-Robbins. I am the host of the Only One in the Room podcast, and I am also a debut memoir author. My memoir, Stashed, My Life in Hiding, came out a little bit earlier this year and has been featured in the New York Times and Oprah Daily. It's on the Oprah Daily homepage as we record this, an excerpt from it. And I am very active in recovery, in the recovery communities, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Eric, do you want to take a moment and introduce yourself? 
Sure. My name is Eric Zimmer, and I am the host of the One You Feed podcast and the creator of a program called Spiritual Habits. And I can say that Laura's memoir is awesome. I read it, so I will say that. It's very well done. But that's kind of me, One You Feed podcast and the Spiritual Habits program. Thank you. Paul, want to take it away? Yeah, Jill, thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Laura, Eric, great to meet you guys. Wow, I'm walking in the footsteps of, uh, of giants right here. This is <laughs> going to be a fun conversation we're going to have. Um, okay, Paul Churchill is my name. I'm 41 years old. I'm zooming in right here from Bozeman, Montana. I was recently married last year. I have a standard poodle named Ben four Nigerian dwarf goats, a couple of reptiles. And I'm so thankful that sobriety is, is the main focus of my life and that I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. And what almost killed me is a pathway to find accountability and sobriety for myself has opened up so many doors. One of them has been the Recovery Elevator podcast, which I launched in February of 2015. And we've had an episode that comes out every Monday. I mean, we're at like episode 432. And again, I selfishly started this for accountability because I could not quit drinking. But 10 million downloads later. What an adventure. Here we are today. And I'm excited to see you again, Jill, and learn from Laura and Eric and connect with these other rock stars. Thank you, Paul. I think Recovery Elevator is everybody's first podcast, basically, when they try to quit drinking. Oh, yeah. I'm honored. Paul's much better at the intro game yeah, than right? I am. We can see. Like... <laughs> the Nigerian dwarf nice goats work. were like the one that yes. got me. <laughs> Totally. They're the superstars in my life right now. One of them's named Hot Dog, uh, Oreo, Mocha, and Elliot, and they oh, are all awesome. about having fun. That's it. They're my teachers right now. Yeah. Those are great names. Um, I'm going to go back to the simple intro. Um, <laughs> I'm Jill. If you don't know me, I host the Sober Powered Podcast. I have a community for support called Living a Sober Powered Life, and I'm also a chemistry professor in the Boston area. That's my side hustle. And I'm really excited to do this conversation today because we're going to talk about our experience in the beginning. And I think a lot of people look at us and they see how much time we have and it feels overwhelming, like they'll never get there. And I also like to talk about the beginning because I never want to forget what I used to go through. I think the more distance you get from it, the easier it is to kind of minimize it in your mind. So I love talking about early sobriety. So I thought the first thing that we could do is just talk briefly about our experience in the first week or the first month, um, whatever you prefer, any challenges that you had, surprises, and how long ago that was for you. Mm -hmm. So Laura, yeah. if you want to start. I'd love to. This is something I like to talk about a lot. So thank you for this question. So my first month was spent in rehab, which I hated and felt sentenced to and ashamed to be there and was really resentful about all the people who seemed to feel safe there and enjoy it. So that's kind of what I consider to be my first month because I spent it, you know, sequestered basically. So I wasn't in real life yet. So my second month is kind of my first experience with living sober. And I was in the middle of a divorce and I was a mom to two young boys. I was the parent association president at their school. I had just been asked to join the board. So I had this very demanding outward life that I just didn't know how to show up for. I have no idea why I still went to three meetings a day. I went to 12-step recovery meetings and I went to three of them a day. And again, I felt sentenced. I was the only black one there. I was the only black one in treatment. I was the only black one in these meetings. And occasionally there might be another one, but basically it was just me. And 
I saw all the reasons why I was different from everybody and none of the reasons why I was the same until much later. And so all I remember is being incredibly physically uncomfortable because I was still going through withdrawal, night sweats, brain zaps, the inability to make eye contact, shakiness, headaches, showing up for my kids and trying to put on a smile for them, and then just going through the motions of everything else. But the motions I went through, in addition to my regular life, were of showing up in recovery meetings and doing what I was told. Thank you, Laura. And how long ago was that? So I will be 15 years sober in August. Oh my God, 15. I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought it was like closer to 10, 15. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It was 2008 when I got sober. That thing you said about forgetting, I have not forgotten. Like it is impressed on my memory how bad it was. I remember it every day for some degree, only to remember to be grateful for what I have right now. Like, I'm so grateful to wake up without body aches. You know, I can work out. And if I am sore, it's because I worked out, not because I'm in withdrawal from pills, you know, and I can show up and I can remember conversations. Like, so I remember the bad stuff only because I'm so grateful for the good stuff. Yeah, I think gratitude is so important. Back when I was drinking, I thought gratitude was dumb. And now that I'm sober and I can actually feel real gratitude, it's very important. Yeah, I agree. So Eric, what was your first week or first month like? Well, I have kind of two periods of sobriety to talk about. One was, you know, I was 24 and I got sober from heroin use and I stayed sober about eight years and very active in recovery. And then went back out and drank for a few years and then got sober a second time and have been sober 16 years since then. So there's these kind of two different recoveries for me, and they're both illustrative in their own way. The first time, like Laura, I was in treatment and I desperately actually, after a little while, did not want to get out of treatment. I was like, you keep me in this building as long as you possibly can because I'm really anxious about what's going to happen when I get out there. The second time, the more recent time, 16 years ago, I did not go to treatment and I did 12-step recovery. And I think the thing to me that I really remember about the early parts of recovery is it just felt torturous to me. And it felt torturous to me because it felt like I was being sort of torn apart inside in that there was this part of me that was screaming for drugs or alcohol. And there was another part of me that was equally screaming, like, do not do it. You know, when I got sober at 24, I weighed 100 pounds. I had hepatitis C. I was facing 50 years of jail time. I mean, there were very compelling reasons not to do it. And so I just remember that early phase and that idea that I think is really important is that sometimes we talk about, well, just quit and everything will get better. Well, that's not what happened, right? Things, at least in my inside world, felt worse for a while. And like Laura, I like to remember that a lot because that is fuel for me often. It's just like, I never want to feel that way again. I never want to feel that at war with my own sort of self inside like that. And the beauty of recovery for me is that that war ends, you know, and that over time, 
eventually it's just not like that anymore. But that's what I remember about early recovery and just all the other stuff. I mean, the first time I was coming off heroin and a lot of it, and I was, I mean, I was just in really bad shape, you know, and second time wasn't quite as much the physical withdrawal, but it was the psychological withdrawal of just all my nerves being exposed to the world. So that's kind of the two recoveries for me and what it was like early on. And what I remember most is that internal turmoil. Thank you, Eric. I'm glad that you described that because I think a lot of people can resonate with that. Like, you know that you don't want to do it, but you do. And it's just like a constant back and forth. So I'm really glad that you described that. Paul, how about you? What was your first week or month like? Yeah, Jill, thanks for asking. And, and Laura and Eric, thanks for sharing your stories. 15 and 16 years. Wow, what a rock star group we have on this podcast. I'm honored to be here. So in August of 2014, uh, about a month after getting a DUI, finding myself waking up in a suicide-proof jail cell, I found myself driving drunk to a wedding where I was the wedding DJ. Greatest job ever, by the way. <laughs> and we've heard these words like surrender, moment of clarity, right? And I recall DJing the ceremony as the bride was walking down the aisle, closing one hand on one eye, praying, hoping that I picked the right song. <laughs> and I did, luckily. And I was in the reception for cocktail hour, and I took four glasses of wine off the person who did the circle, like the waitress or waiter. And I knew, I hit this moment, it's like, you know what? A, I'm going to ruin this wedding, and B, I'm in rough shape. I cannot keep going on like this. And there was this moment of clarity, and the universe had my back. I had another DJ who finished the event. He came over filled in for me. I told my parents, everybody in voice memos that I was going to rehab. And that was the surrender component. The next day when I woke up, I remember this. I heard birds for one of the first times. And the plan was to go to the rehab, go to treatment, however that was going to go. But I remember hearing the birds and I told my parents, you know what, give me just a couple more days here. And what I did those first 30 days was I got in nature. There is a waterfall about 30 minutes away from me, the trailhead, and about a two and a half mile hike. I think I did that hike 20 out of the 30 days in September of 2014. I also went to Alcoholics Anonymous. What a phenomenal program. And a drinking problem or an addiction can put yourself in such a difficult but a beautiful spot where I could clearly see I didn't have control and every problem that I've had, I was part of it. Like I was the problem. And so when that happens, yes, it sucks to realize that, but also you start asking for help. You're like, Hey, this isn't working for me. Like how to work for you. There's the openness, there's a the willingness. And I ended up not going to treatment. Nature did so much to my nervous system that first month, AA, the support, and really just doing anything that it took to stay sober. So I'm so thankful for my addiction. Obviously, it was a difficult month and those withdrawal symptoms that Laura and Eric spoke about, I went through all of them. They were they're horrible, terrible, and I don't want to forget them. We've heard the phrase that the newcomer is the most important person in the room. And I think for that, it reminds us, oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't got it. And if I go back, it's going to be rough. So, yeah, thank you, Jill. I resonated with so much of that, especially the one eye. I did that a lot. <laughs> the close one eye so you can see, like trying to text people or so bad. Or driving, God forbid. I did that too, yep. To think about how reckless and dangerous that is now, but it was a common thing. Oh, yeah. So I'm the baby sober in the room. As of today, I'm three and a half years sober. Congratulations. Thank you, guys. Yeah, that's Thank what's up. you. So I was a daily drinker. But I held it together on the outside. I was the person that no one thought had a problem, even though looking back, I'm like, how did you guys not? <laughs> like those times you were there and you saw all these things, how did you not think that was bad? But I used that to justify why I didn't have to stop for a really long time. 
I used my educational background to justify it. And I quit because I got really suicidal and I was afraid of myself and what I would do. And because I felt that way, I thought that no one else had ever felt suicidal (laughs) from their addiction before, which now I know like a lot of people do. But in the beginning, I thought it was unique to me. So I kept it to myself and I didn't tell anyone except my husband. And I tried to just be sober by myself with no support. I really believed like if I started telling people, they would do like the 72 hour hold on me, even though I didn't feel that way once I quit. And it took me a while until quarantine started when I was four months sober to actually start getting support and getting out there. So I don't recommend doing it on your own, but I was just really scared of how other people would respond to me. And now I'm grateful to have so much support because as time went on, I started trying to talk myself back into it. Like, oh, look at this person's story. You weren't that bad. Like maybe you just went overboard and maybe you can drink again and it's not a thing. So it's good for me to be present here and hear from all of you because I remember the one eye thing, like that's not normal behavior. You shouldn't have to do that. And it helps keep those thoughts away when they pop up. I also had a gigantic pink cloud. So the beginning was the nicest time for me. And then the bad time came later when the pink cloud wore off and I realized like I still can't drink and I had to accept it again. But the beginning was actually a great time because I had so many benefits right away mentally like I wasn't suicidal anymore and that that's its own high when you when you hate yourself less than you did last week (laughs) so I think it's interesting how much our experiences differ and how similar they are at the same time I agree I don't know as much about your story Jill as I would like to but I think the feelings you just described are so easily relatable whether the particulars in the story match or not doesn't matter And, you know, Eric, I know your story pretty well now from listening to you and and from interviewing you. But Paul, I love that you got out of a suicide-proof cell and drank and drove to do a job because that makes perfect sense. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the same day, but (laughs) shortly after. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to anyone else, right? That seems like insanity. And then for us, it's like, of course you did. Of course you know, however many days later, you're going to DJ at a wedding. So you have to drink, right? You can't show up there sober. That would be dumb. (laughs) No way. No way. (laughs) And then looking back at it with the perspective that we have, that's the thing I think that people would like me to impart to them when they're in it, when they're in the addiction is that perspective. And I can't, I mean, I can tell them my story, but I can't give them their own perspective. You know, they're like, what's the secret? How can I get out of this? And, you know, it's it's just so hard. I'd love to be able to say, look, you're going to look back at, you know, driving or, you know, drinking again, you know, whatever it is and think, you know, this was a left turn for me, but I had to go through all those left turns and get there myself. And nobody else's perspective was particularly helpful to me. Yeah, that mystery of when it's time for someone. Yes. And then what the best path for them is, is certainly a mystery. And I've listened to Paul on on your podcast. I've heard you really break down the components of recovery and the internal, external splits and lots of really great thinking about how 
we can think through this recovery journey. And I know, Jill, you do, and Laura, we've all spent a lot of time around this. And yet there is, to me, a fundamental mystery a little bit about what causes somebody to suddenly be at that point where they're done. Now, the problem with that, we say that all the time, like, well, you know, when you're ready, when you're done, we only know that in the rearview mirror. Like, I didn't know it at the time, right? Because every single time up till then that I had said, I'm done, I was not done, <laughs> right? I'm ready. No more of this. Well, clearly that was not the end then. And so that question, I think we can get a little bit hung up on sometimes, like, am I really ready? When we feel a call towards any sort of recovery, I think it's worth jumping on it to the best of our ability at that time. And then we'll see over time. Was that the last time or was that one of the learning experiences, you know, because I could have given you six other stories about my first 30 days in recovery, right? Where it was like, I got five days, I got 30 days, I got 18 days. I mean, my first time around, I guess stayed sober 30 days. I went on my 30th day sober. I watched my sponsor talk and immediately left and went and got high which I love to tease him about what a great message he had. But again, it's like we don't know we're done till sort of looking back on it. I want to comment a bit on that as well. I think the when you're done component, it is so confusing and so baffling, but I feel it's almost this universal divine intervention and an idea or concept that I could be totally wrong on, but I found traction with is that nothing in this universe exists without a purpose. This is called endowment theory in biology. And that applies to an addiction. Like, what's the point of it? I don't think it's, it's a malfunction. I think it's something that flexes us so intensely internally with the pain points that we get a front row lesson. You know, it sounds great on paper to say, you know, you can be right or you can have peace. That's a beautiful phrase on a keychain or whatnot. But I think those who go through addiction get a front row seat. Like you can be right or you can have peace and peace is sobriety and right is continued drinking for me. I really struggled with that. And Eric, as you said, I made those internal declarations. I'm done. I'm done forever, forever. But it really, I wasn't in, until I was. And if somebody's listening right now, my advice is to keep going, keep building the idea of your sober life internally with the very powerful human brain, which could be leveraged either way for destruction or to create love in, in an environment where alcohol isn't needed. But that's a tough one. It, it, it is for sure. It's great to hear your perspective, Laura, as you as well, Eric. People used to say to me when I was trying to moderate for years, I was in sober Facebook groups and I didn't make the connection there that I wanted to moderate, but I had joined sober groups. <laughs> but people used to say to me all the time, like, you're just not ready. And that used to make me so mad. Like, of course I'm ready. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? How can I not be ready? I'm so ready. Like, I'm so sick of this. I feel horrible. And then when I finally quit for good and I felt that readiness and that peace, I knew what they meant. When you guys quit for good, did you know that it was forever or did it take a bit before you realized that? For me, I went to treatment not to get sober, but to stay in my children's lives. Sober was not at all my goal. But I did think, you know, I'll get a system reset and I can use and drink as needed and not be mastered by it. So the idea of quitting for good didn't really occur to me until I was about a year sober. So were you just moving the goalposts? Like after you got out of treatment, were you saying like, oh, I'll just do another month? Did you set a goal for a year? I had a very prescriptive divorce attorney who put me on a 90-day plan of drug testing and therapy and AA meetings. And so those kept me 
away from drugs and alcohol because I didn't want to blow a drug test. And I also wanted all the ammunition that she was asking for in case we went to court, which we didn't end up doing. But that became my priority over getting loaded, like those switched for whatever reason. And it could be divine intervention. Like Paul said, I believe there are moments of grace in my life that I stepped through. Basically, she just kind of gave me a third rail Like, this is the thing that will kill you. So you must do all these things so you don't get electrocuted. And so I did. And then that took me till, you know, about four months over because it was 90 days out of treatment. And then I was scared. I think the thing that kept me sober that first year was just fear. Then I was newly divorced with two little kids. So what happened for real if I knocked myself out in the middle of the night? You know, I was by myself with my kids because I did. I vowed I swore off many, many times before I actually got sober. If I allowed myself even a little bit, I wasn't sure. Actually, I was sure. I was sure that that little bit wouldn't be it. It was so unpredictable. So I decided to stay away from it for fear of harming my children or not being able to be in their lives. And what changed around a year? In California, in Los Angeles, anyway, we take cakes in 12-step recovery to celebrate milestones. And I was not going to take one. Someone made me take one and I took one and I gave like the shortest kind of like cake speech ever. And someone came up to me afterward and asked me to sponsor them. And I'm like, oh, you don't want me. I'm not even staying. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know anything about this program. And they were like, no, I've been watching you. I want you. And so being like the good student or whatever preparer that I am, I decided to read this book so that I could take her through it and be done. But she touched my heart and she needed help. And so I read the book and in the process of reading it with her, I found myself in bits of it, not all of it. And then someone else asked me, once they saw kind of the bond that she and I were forming, someone else asked me to take them through the work. And so I stayed and probably about two years is when I was like, oh... I'm better. I don't like the stuff I had to do to get better, but it's like working out. Like I hate working out, but I'm better because of it. And I didn't like the process. I didn't like the meetings. I didn't like the joining and the engagement and the fellowship. And you can tell by the tone of my voice, I still don't love all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) but I'm much more tolerant of it now. And and some of it is, is desirable, but I started falling in love with who I was as a result of it. And for me, it was really just the honesty piece. I had been so dishonest my entire life. The program, as I worked, it required me to be honest, as honest as I could be. Not just cash register honesty, but vulnerable honesty, being real with people. Not everyone, because <laughs> that would be inappropriate, but <laughs> being real with the people that I entrusted with my recovery, and sometimes just in big rooms full of people I didn't know or trust. And that was helpful to me, which shocked the shit out of me, because... I always thought I have to keep this close, this yucky stuff close, because I thought it was life or death. It felt like survival to me. And then in the end, not only was it not survival, I saw the harm I was doing myself in keeping it close. When I got sober at 24 in treatment, I don't think I knew it was the end, but there was a process of going from, I'm here because I don't want to be dope sick, and I'm here because I don't want to go to jail for a long time. And the fear of that started to mix or mingle a little bit with some hope around the fact that life could get better and could be a good thing. And so, you know, I often think about the consequences get us 
you know, sometimes to recovery. But as I've thought more about it, I'm like, well, consequences sort of need to come together about the same time that some hope shows up. Because just consequences, at least for me, I went through a phase like that where I went to treatment a couple times and didn't get sober and bad things kept happening. And that was a really dangerous and dark period for me because I thought, I don't think we say it much anymore, but in the early 90s we did, which is once an addict, always an addict. And I thought, I'm going to die like this. And so all the bad wasn't enough. It was actually dangerous. And so I needed the hope to both those things to come together. But in both my recovery periods, I think there's that mixture of I'm trying to get away from the bad things, but then I'm starting to be pulled towards the good things. And they both play a role for me in getting sober and staying sober. They're both there. There's all the amazing and wonderful things I've gotten out of recovery that I never would have gotten otherwise, liking myself and all the things, Laura, that you talked about. And then there's also, as we said a little while ago, like looking back going, uh-uh, no thank you don't want any of that either. So for me, it was kind of a blend, but I don't think I knew it was the end, but there was a certain point where I really hoped deeply that it was, <laughs> you know, like I really hope this is the last time. I don't know if it is because I have a healthy fear of this, but I want it to be. How long did it take for you to start feeling hopeful? Um, I would say within the first 30 days, there started to be moments of it. You know, there certainly started to be periods. And I think that's why community, wherever we find it, is so important. Because I could not have seen that hope on my own. I simply didn't have it in me. It was seeing other people saying, I was just like you. And now my life is really, really good. And going, oh, well, I didn't. I actually didn't think that was a possibility. I thought, I've got to give this up because it's killing me or it's going to send me to jail, but it's going to suck. You know, I've got to do it, but it's going to suck to seeing other people saying, no, not only can you get sober, this can be a beautiful and wonderful life. And that was really powerful for me. So I think we sometimes talk about these stages of recovery of, as if they're this monolithic things. Like I was in despair. I was happy. And the reality for me is my emotions were probably kind of all over the place. Like I'm feeling really hopeful for two hours. And then for the next two hours, I'm feeling deep despair and want to get high. And then, you know, so I think for me, there was a lot of kind of back and forth between all these states. But over time, the states that began to become more prevalent were the ones of hope. And, you know, the despair was going down and the craving was going down. I like that. It's not just a switch like you get sober and everything's hopeful and lovely. It's a slow switch over time. And then the good stuff starts to become more and more. Yep. How about you? Did you know you were done? Yep. When I quit, my husband was with me because he used to stay up all night with me. Wow. Yeah. I have a good husband. Yeah. He's like, mm. he's a really supportive guy. He used to stay up all night with me and like try to help me when I was hating myself and like having really bad alcohol anxiety. And we were sitting on the couch and watching the sun come up. I had kept us up all night again, which was like not new. And I looked at him and I was like, I can never drink ever again. And I knew and I felt so much peace when I said it. So I know a lot of people don't like the idea forever, but like that helped me because now I don't consider it like I just knew never. And I had had an experience where 
literally the same experience, 5.30 in the morning watching the sun come up. And I said to him, I can't drink for 90 days. Like the same copy paste, like same spot on the couch, everything. And I did the 90 days and I went back, just like you were saying, Laura, where like you just need a reset and then, you know, just sometimes our tolerance is the problem. And I found that it was the same. And that I think was why I could say forever because I had a very clear example of what happens when I take a break, that it just relaxes back to normal. I immediately said forever. And then it stressed me out later when my pink cloud went away. But in the beginning, I did say forever and I knew. How long did you say your pink cloud lasted? Almost six months. Yeah, the benefits were increasing a lot and I was really excited about those. I mean, it was obviously more intense in like month one, but then around like five to six months, the benefits completely stabilized and then I just couldn't drink. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so now my life is good, but then I can't do my favorite thing. And that was really hard for me to accept. So month like six to nine was really, really hard emotionally. And then I I worked through it. I want to ask you a question, but I want to grab Paul while he's here. <laughs> Catch him while he can. I know. Paul's in and out. So just can I put a pin in the question I want to ask you, Jill, and then go to, to Paul to talk about what were we talking about? We were talking about whether when we got sober, we sort of knew right like, that was that this, this is, is it, it yes. you know, or you know how we thought about that question, you know, in the beginning. Okay, it's good to be back. Thank you. I apologize. In springtime in Montana, it was it was sunny this morning, and I looked up, and there was a massive hailstorm. And I might be here for twenty seconds. I don't know, but let's take advantage of it. It's good to be back. Um, okay, I wasn't certain that September seventh, twenty fourteen, was going to be my last drink of alcohol. But I mentioned when I woke up right before, about six days before, that I heard the birds for the first time. And my last drink was about six days later on a Friday night and went camping with people. And we talk about this moment of clarity, whatnot. I drank half of a beer and I looked at it and I knew unequivocally internally that if I finished that beer, my entire life was going to go down a, a totally different route. And that entire life would have been condensed two, three years more. Suicide was already, already gave it a go. So I didn't know. I didn't know that was going to be my last sobriety date, but I knew something was different. And after interviewing hundreds of people for the RE podcast. That's a line that sticks out that, you know, I just knew that something was different that time. And what I didn't know at the time what I had done or what I was doing was I was connecting. We've all heard that phrase, the opposite of addiction is connection, but I was connecting with the land. When I walked up to that waterfall, almost 20 days out of 30 days, I was connecting with the stars. There was a time where I wouldn't go back to Bozeman, the town I live in, until I saw the first star. So I'd sit on this picnic bench in the wilderness, in the forest, and I'd wait till the sun went down. And as soon as I saw that first star, I would come back. And those are the lengths that I had to go to. I just knew that's what I had to do. And at about two months away from alcohol, I went to an AA meeting and the voice was like, ah, I've got this. And I remember I was going to turn around in my car. I looked at my watch like, you know, I don't have time for this. I've got two months of sobriety, totally under, under wraps. And this a bigger voice showed up. was like, no, Paul, you don't have this. You're going to that meeting and you need to do everything. And I had loved podcasts. And at that moment, there wasn't a lot of sobriety podcasts. Thank goodness. Now there's a lot, which is awesome. And so I selfishly started a podcast just to keep myself accountable and 
And so, yeah, I didn't know that was going to be the run and that run might not stick forever. I really, truly have accepted that it's just one day at a time and that simplifies everything. And another thing, there's a spiritual phrase that has been remixed hundreds of times, whatnot, is ask and you shall receive. We've all heard that. And when we get to those moments of such intense pain, such intense discomfort internally, we don't know who we are. There's a bigger voice that starts to emerge. It's like, dear God, please help. It's the foxhole prayer. And I began asking for help, right? I didn't know it at the time, but it was like, ah, I can't live like this anymore. Please help. I remember turning my gaze to the stars, to the clouds, to the earth, to whatever. Like, I can't do this anymore. Please help. And the help arrived. It did. The help arrived in a beautiful format of a standard poodle. And he went to the waterfall every single time I went there. And I leaned into other energies on the universe that were there to help me. And yes, my parents were there. And yes, I had great friends, the AA community. And I'm so thankful for the RE community as well. I needed a lot of help to quit drinking. I did. And everybody needs help to depart from an addiction. And I asked for help to the universe and I got it. And before the hailstorm kicked me off, I heard Laura say something about loving herself, right? And I think, and again, an addiction, one of those points is to unite ourselves with our true selves, right? All the higher self, the lower self. And when we are ready, we talked about this earlier, is you have to get all parts of you on board before quitting drinking. If you just internally say, I'm done quitting drinking, that's kind of the conscious self. It's like, yeah, I'm done quitting drinking. But you need to, you need to line up the soul, the conscious, the unconscious, the heart, the mind, the whole body, the whole compartment that is you and say, we are doing this. This is the trajectory we are moving in. And it takes a long time to gather all the parts of the personality to do that and move forward. So hopefully the streak goes. I've already learned a lot from Eric and Laura and you too, Jill. So so thanks for having me and hopefully I'll be here for the remainder of this. I really do. I, I wish I, I, I'm sorry I missed a little bit there. With a hailstorm, I'm worried about the goats. Yeah, right. Though. That's the main thing that's kind of on my mind. How are, are the goats okay? Are they sheltered? Are they? I thought about that. They're on the backyard. Okay. They know where to go. But my wife's right. outside on her on her bike. I called her, and uh, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Well, but now I'm worried about your I know, wife right? bike in a hailstorm. <laughs> okay. It's not tailing. Right. I, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Paul, there's just something so illustrative about the way you speak. It's really like having the beer in your hand and having it be half empty and knowing that that's your crossroads. And, you know, like like the jail cell and it gives me a visceral response. I can visualize your story really well. I, I just, I'm appreciating the description that you're giving us. I love that. I love stories. That's why I have a storytelling podcast <laughs> because I love these stories. And yeah, I, I love to have you come on I wanted to ask Jill a question that kind of piggybacked on your experience from getting sober and having that pink cloud and and that last drink that you talked about, or that last night on your sofa. And it kind of goes into the trigger conversation that I know we were going to have, but mm. what was your experience, like your first experience that you remember being out at a social situation where cocktails were being served? What was that like? And did you prepare for it? Good question. So my first almost four months of sobriety, I was doing it entirely alone. Although I was listening to Craig Beck's podcast and he was like saving me. So I was reading some quit lit and listening to like, I eventually discovered Paul's podcast, but I was not like doing very much. And I just knew I would go and not drink. And there's a lot of drinking in science. And <laughs> I quit in November. So I quit 
right before the holiday season. So there were a lot of parties. There were a lot of happy hours. And the first one I ever went to was like a goodbye party for somebody. They had quit and got another job. And I got a little mocktail and I was like, okay, I'm good. Nobody's going to (laughs) detect that I'm sober. They're going to leave me alone. And somebody like had heard me say it or like someone mentioned they got a mocktail too because a couple people were trying to be supportive even though I wasn't really telling anyone and this woman cornered me when I tell the story I always call her like the crazy lady and she cornered me and she very loudly was like you're still not drinking why? Like she demanded to know in front of everybody, like all the bosses all the way up the chain. Mm. And I was cool. I was like, yeah, I'm not. Thanks. And I just kind of looked at her and made it uncomfortable. And she answered her own question. She decided I was on a cleanse, whatever. But every time I went to one of these happy hours, I would leave and I would cry in my car from the stress And it wasn't that I was like having an internal debate, like I want to drink, but I can't. Oh, but maybe I can if whatever. I knew I wasn't going to drink, but it just sucked. And I felt really uncomfortable and I didn't know what to do with the uncomfortable feeling. So I would just hold it in for two or three hours and then cry. But then after I cried, I remember I felt like insanely proud of myself after I got the feeling out. And then it got easier and then quarantine happened and I didn't have to socialize with any of those people. At all. So it kind of backed right up into that, right? The quarantine. That's awesome. Yeah. And then I got out of practice though. So coming out of quarantine was a little bit hard. I had a lot of time, but I had not very much experience. Really interesting. What about you, Paul? Basically, like we were talking kind of about triggers and just if you were at your first experience at a place where where drinks were being served and you weren't drinking and what was that like and then how did you prepare for it? For sure. And again, I had to get to the point where unequivocally every cell in my body knew, right? And I'd burned the ships in MP3 format. I was terrified, but it had landed that I can't, if I drink, I die, right? So I had versed that and we make it so overcomplicated of, you know, we think the planets will fall out of orbit, but I burned the ships completely unequivocally. And one of my favorite stories with this is I was on a, an adult kickball team, probably three years of sobriety, and we won the championship. Hell yes. I still play in that kickball league. And we won the championship and we were at the sponsor bar or, you know, where we go afterward. And the team we played against, I went up to get a water or soda water, whatever. And there's about six or seven people getting shots. And they saw me show up and they're just like, shots, shots, shots. Just like the LMFAO song, I decline. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. No, 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 no. Shot, shot, shots. And just like, do it. And I go, guys, I appreciate it. My last drink was three and a half years ago. I can't take a shot. And there is a chemical response in people when somebody's vulnerable and authentic and they lay it out how it is. Not one of those people was like, oh, everybody was like, oh, shit, great job. Like, that's incredible. No way. We'll take the shot. And so if you stand in your authority and know who you are, as I mentioned, a part of an addiction is to connect you with your more authentic self, the deeper you then you're going to be okay. And people, 95% of them are like, wow, great job. Like you do you, they want to support your mission. But a couple of them sometimes get defensive when you say you don't drink, but here's why they're also questioning the role that alcohol is playing in their own life. 
And we can be intimidating some people like, wait, Jill quit drinking, Laura did, Eric, I, I drank more than they did. So a lot of the results are mixed, but overall not drinking and relaying that information to people has been the best filter I could have ever asked for, especially dating, right? I found out date one, if this was going to be a fit or instead of five, 10 dates down the road, it's been a phenomenal filter for friends, for family, for workplace, for, for everything. Yeah. Thanks for asking, Laura. I can, I can tell you're a very good podcaster and same with you, Eric. Everybody is very attentive and, and good listeners. So thank you. Well, and clearly the dating work because you are newly married, you said, right? Yeah. 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 Mid, uh, mid pandemic, I had had enough of quarantine and I went to the country of Colombia. Very cool. And uh, yeah, I met my wife. It was, it was phenomenal. What about you, Eric? Well, I feel like a Dickens novel, right? Because I'm like the tale of two sobrieties, but they're so very different. And I talk about them because the first one was significant enough in that, you know, I got sober for like eight years and was so in recovery that it didn't feel like a trial run. And so the first time I was in treatment and my primary addiction at that point, well, I was addicted to everything, but the thing that was most on my mind was heroin. And so I just stayed as far away from all of that as I possibly could. But I remember I went into a halfway house after the treatment center and I was in there and one day they admitted a new guy and he was in the kitchen and they were sort of unpacking his stuff. And I walked in and there were like 10 syringes on the counter. He was a diabetic, but the response in me was so overwhelming that I turned around and just started vomiting. Mm. The trigger was so like, oh, just brutal. Wow. And so there's a lot of benefit, I think, to being like, just totally away from it. Right. But then you do have the challenge of when you run into it, you've got to be particularly prepared. Because as Jill said, you didn't have a lot of practice with that. When I got sober the second time, I was primarily a drinker and a lot of marijuana smoking. I had a job where I was in a sales role. Part of my job was to take people out who were drinking. And my wife at the time was a daily drinker. And so from day one, I was around it all of the time. And I don't recommend that as a strategy. I think if you've got the choice to kind of get away from it, that's probably wiser. I feel like I made it a lot harder on myself. You know, I wanted to drink. The first time my cravings went away semi-quickly, this time it felt like I was dogged by them for six months. And I think part of it is I just was around it all the time. But I was pretty well used to it at that point. And so, you know, my triggers that second time were far more emotional. I think the first time they were location-based, they were certain situation. The second time they were very emotionally based, you know, over time, what I would notice is my brain would just sort of start saying, I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink. And it took me a while to sort of go, okay, well, in the beginning, that's just kind of what the brain does. But after the early stages, I was like, this still comes up pretty regularly. And so then I had to kind of do the next level down. Like, what am I actually feeling when that tape goes off in my head? I, you know, I was able to identify what some of the different things were for me, what those triggers were. So I think triggers come in different kinds. You know, there is that location-based trigger, right? I drive by the bar where I got drunk every night after work. I'm triggered, right? There's the people triggers. Like, oh, I'm seeing Bob and Bob and I used to get drunk all the time together. But there's time triggers, right? Like for me, right at the end of the day when work ended was always a very difficult time. And then there's like emotional based triggers, right? The things that are going on inside me or the situations and the people around me. And so I think for me, sort of understanding all of those and how to respond to each of them is an important part of 
kind of getting to the point where I felt pretty safe and secure in recovery. I'm really struck by what you said about examining what's behind I want to drink. I mean, I think that ability for a self-examination in that moment, that's wonderful that you have that ability to even slow it down long enough to see. I think for me, that was practice Mm -hmm. to get to that point. It feels like stopping time a little, right? Like you can feel like yourself reaching for something and you freeze it. What I've learned about triggers here is they pass. (laughs) I came across somewhere that the average time frame of a trigger or an emotional front that is extremely uncomfortable is 20 minutes, right? Mm. And I remember in those first 30 days, I would set a timer with Siri. Hey, Siri, set a timer for 20 minutes. And I would also trick myself and say, yo, dude, let's just go for a run first, Paul, and then we'll drink. Yeah. And then I would say, oh, ah, it's cool. We're going to drink. No worries, but let's do laundry first. Hey there, big guy. Not a problem. Let's just cook dinner first and then we're going to get blasted, right? And then after four or five of those, they'd go away. One of my favorite resources or techniques here is, look, you can't outthink your drink. You cannot think yourself out of an addiction. If you could, we wouldn't be on this call right now. You just can't. But we've got a lot of data in our past. You can play the tape forward. I've got a pretty good idea right now after not having a drink for almost eight plus years. I've got a damn good idea of what will happen when I take that drink. I can play the tape forward. Is it going to be one? Probably not. Is it going to be under five? Probably not. Will I cut it off after a night? You know, the last 50, 100 times I drank, I was unable to stop in one night. It would go into the next morning. So I'd play the tape forward and I would keep playing it forward. Be like, yeah, we're probably going to end up in jail perhaps or you know, five or six day binge. And I would sit with that like, ah, you know, alcohol, it's not working for me as much anymore. Is that really worth it? Again, you can't think yourself out of an addiction, but sometimes you can see things. You've got a good idea based off the past experiences of what is going to happen. And that doesn't always work. Sometimes, you know, just the universe lines up. It's more of a challenge than that. I have pounded my fists into the grass before. I've gone out to the forest and yelled. (laughs) And sometimes I'm still learning tools on, on how to get through triggers. But thank you, universe, and the help that I've had that, you know, alcohol, that's not the go-to right now. I don't think about taking a drink when I have difficult times. I'll throw a temper tantrum, you know, in my basement and yell and I'll pull my ukulele off the wall and strum some chords, (laughs) a minor chord and just sing and make a song up. And really, you know, sometimes it can get messy and ugly to get, get through a trigger or craving, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day. And here's the neat part about sobriety and this stuff is, Eric, I've just met you and I've heard about your podcast a lot. I love your logo. It's really cool to finally meet you, Eric. I've been seeing your your stuff for years now and Laura's great, but there's a camaraderie with sobriety and you don't have to go through any of this stuff alone. You can go to one AA meeting, you get 30 numbers, call any of those people up at any time in the next year or two, whenever, and they reach out to help. And I feel honored to meet Eric and thank you, Jill, and same with Laura, because I feel like I have three new new contacts that we go to bat for each other at any moment. So to leverage the community that is just waiting for you. And I think one of the worst things somebody can do is to just quit drinking or just quit using because there is this beautiful, loving, authentic, welcoming community just waiting for you. I've gone to AA meetings in I think seven or eight different countries, and it's the same thing, every country. You walk in, hey, I don't know the language, but I'm at a barbecue afterward, right? Somebody always, <laughs> like your home, your family, right? And, and the camaraderie of this sobriety or sober movement, which really is authenticity. It's the movement of finding your true self without an external substance, alcohol, heroin, drugs, whatever it may be. That's a badass movement. Like sign me up for that. Has it been easy? Hell no. I think life in general is is not easy, right? But what a beautiful trajectory. What a beautiful pathway. When I'm triggered, 
I recognize that. What is that phrase? All things pass. This too shall pass. Just wait it out. Live to see another day sometimes. As I mentioned, sometimes it's not pretty at all. But you know what? You wake up the next day and say, Oof, what was the problem yesterday? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of delay. That is a very useful strategy. Just not now, you know, put something else in front of it because yeah, it, it does tend to pass. Yeah. Well, that's the opposite of addiction though, isn't it? Because addiction is instantaneous. Mm. It's a fix. And so to delay that fix mm. is very counterintuitive for me. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, I was just really struck when you said that, that that was the process through which you went. And I think if I were new and I heard that, that would be what I would work toward after I heard someone say that. I would work toward giving myself even a timer, you know, of, okay, I'm just going to wait one minute in my car before I go back in and order a shot or whatever it is. And, you know, I don't know if I would be able to reflect back, like you said, and examine what's underneath it, but it is what I do now as well. It's second nature now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that I have to kind of talk myself through. I observe myself doing it and I'm like, you go, girl. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you just did. That was dope. Yeah. I'll just say really quickly, I was going to just talk briefly about an experience I had the other night where I was invited to a party where I was the guest of honor and everyone was drinking. It was a small cocktail party. And for the first time in a really long time, it looked fun to me. Like it usually doesn't. I'm usually really bored and irritated by drunk people and I just want to go home. But this time they weren't drunk. They were, it was just convivial. You know, it was that black people call it kikiing when everybody's like talking over each other. And <laughs> I was like drawn into that. But what I realized toward the middle of the party is that they were all matching my level of vulnerability and generosity. Like I was already like that. Mm. They came in a little bit stiffer. And as they drank a couple of drinks, they they kind of became like I was. Like, you know, I'm very affectionate. I hug people. I want to listen to what they're talking about. I have a warmth about me that is is authentic. It's natural. And I think when I was you know, in my addiction, that was squelched. Like I couldn't be that person. So that's who I am naturally now. And I was like, oh, I don't need to drink to have what they're having because I actually have this naturally. And I know not everybody does. I know there's social anxiety and people go in rigid and they endure and then they leave, which is sometimes my experience. But at this particular party, I felt very free and warm and just like able to navigate it in this Again, observing myself like, wow, look at this. You don't need a drink to have fun, basically. And when it really looked like everybody was having fun with their drinks. And I was I was the only one not drinking there. I was the only one. Was it when you had that insight like, oh, wait, I'm already kind of where they're getting to that it no longer looked good to you? I'm curious where the transition happened. Because in the beginning, right, you were like, wait, that looks really good. But it sounds like at some point, maybe... I guess you didn't say that explicitly, but at some point, maybe that changed. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that the drink itself looked good. I just thought it looked fun. And I think once I realized that I too was having fun, there was a aha moment like, oh, I don't need the drink to have fun. And mind you, the first year, that was not the case for me. I went to several events where I was pivotal in these kind of leadership positions at my kid's school, galas where I had to fake it through the whole event and then get home. And like you said, Jill, I didn't cry in my car, but the stress of it just, 
I would like grip the steering wheel when I got in the car and be like, okay, I can breathe now. (laughs) I got through it. And, you know, it was like being frozen for two hours and then getting in the car and thawing afterward. But I didn't have to get in the car and thaw this time. I was already thawed and I was fine. But there was an aha moment for me that it wasn't like, I don't want to drink, but I did want to have fun like that. And that I was able to do that without a drink was was a really cool thing for me to witness of myself. I think that learning to do what a drink naturally did for us is a really interesting learning experience and and one that I've played with different ways. I mean, still, it takes me a while to warm up around people. I mean, I don't even mean like 20 minutes. I mean, like I met you like six times. Yeah. Like, I mean, it just depends on the situation. But that is one thing that like, I just have sort of gone, you know what, like, that's kind of who you are. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay just to be the way you are with this. And the fact that if you put me in a room full of people I don't know, it's going to take me a while. And instead of going, that's bad, that's wrong. Boy, if I had a drink, it would just be, just go, okay, you know what? That's who you are, Eric. It's all right. The other thing that's been interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about, I did, did this not that long ago. We went me and a couple friends went out there, both sober, and there was a sober bar in Columbus, Ohio. You've probably got these all over the place in, in Los Angeles, but you don't have many of them here. Uh, matter of fact, that was the only one, and it is now gone. And we went, and it was a very, very strange environment, and they were doing karaoke. And part of me wanted to do it, and then like 90% of me was terrified to do it. And then I went, you know what? If I was drunk, I would just hop right up there. So to me, there are times where I'm like, I try and push myself almost. Again, not trying to make myself be somebody I'm not. But when I recognize like, "Eh, there's a part of me that would like that, but I'm afraid. So I was like, I got up and I did karaoke. I was terrible. Um, But I did it. I wish I was there. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did a Leonard Cohen song. You know, sometimes I'll do that with dancing. Same thing. Like there's a part of me that wants to dance, but I'm afraid. I just am. And, And I'll just be like, just come on, kind of push myself a little bit to kind of learn to do some of these things that are harder for me that alcohol used to make easier. Again, without trying to be somebody I'm not, but I have found there are times it's helpful to kind of give myself a gentle nudge. Dancing is one of those things. It's like the level of self-awareness that one has sober when you step out onto the dance floor is so much different (laughs) than when you've had a couple drinks. Totally. And you're aware of different things. You're aware of the music and like it's making you feel this way and let's go. And as opposed to, is this the right move? You know, it's just, it's just so much different. Yep. But I love that you shared that. Thank you. How about you, Jill, with that kind of stuff? I did that same thing, actually. The first time I went to a sober wedding, I was sober at the wedding. The wedding was a lot of alcohol with an open bar, but I worried about it for like a year and a half. And then (laughs) (laughs) I did. And then I I went to the wedding and I was really stiff and uncomfortable about dancing. I was secure in my not drinking. I was like a little under two years sober at the time. And I was, I was okay. But then I thought like, it's okay if you don't dance. It's fine. You don't have to. But I think tomorrow's Jill would feel really good if you danced a little bit. Then like one of my favorite songs came on and I grabbed the groom, who's my husband's best friend. And we went and we danced and it was like, ooh, like awkward. And I had like bad moves. 
but I did it. And I made friends with like the drunk girls that just want to dance all night. And I danced with them and danced by <laughs> myself. And I felt really proud of myself. And I've been to weddings where I haven't danced at all. But I try to think just like you were saying with the karaoke, like that you would have done that. And you felt good about it the next day. I don't think I'll do karaoke, though, because Drunk Jill has done a lot of karaoke. And I think it would be like, it hurt my heart to do karaoke again. But dancing I can do sometimes. I love the way you put that about you don't have to go out there and dance. But, you know, the Jill of tomorrow will look back and be like, I'm, I'm glad I like it, it. That's a very like self-compassionate way of nudging yourself. Like, I just love the way you put that. I think that really describes the right way to do that in a, in a way that helps us grow instead of making us feel bad about who we are. So, guys, this was amazing. I feel like we have to do this again. This was really helpful for me. But where can we connect with you and learn more about your work and if there's anything that you're up to that you want to share. Uh, Laura, I know you've been like insanely busy. <laughs> I have been. It's actually slowing down now, but everything that is me is on the onlyonepod.com. And there you'll find all the events, all my speaking engagements, all the episodes of the podcast, everything about the book. The only place I really live on social media is Instagram. And that's at Laura Cathcart, C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T, Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S. And I just want to thank you all. This has been incredible. And thank you, Jill, for organizing it. I'd love to do it again. So I'm looking forward to the next time. Thank you. Eric, where can we connect with you? Yeah, oneyoufeed.net. That's kind of all spelled out. O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. The podcast is there. Any programs we're doing. I'm co-teaching a workshop at the Kripalu Institute in Massachusetts this summer. It's about awakening in nature. I'm co-teaching it with a Buddhist teacher, Ralph De La Rosa. So information on that is on the website. And we are trying to do more Instagram and that's one underscore Y-O-U underscore feed. I didn't know that you were coming to Massachusetts. We have, I'm going to talk to you about that later, but we have to meet up. Okay. All right. Deal. Paul, where can we connect with you and learn about your work? Okay. So it's recoveryelevator.com. We're also at Instagram at recoveryelevator. We're a private community cafe RE. We do sober travel trips. We just did a trip to Costa Rica and we'll see what happens in the world of sobriety in the future. And this was so cool to be here with Eric, Laura, Jill. Thank you very much for organizing this. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. And if you search for Sober Powered, you can find me. That's my show, my website, and my Instagram. And thank you guys so much for being here. All the links to everything will be in the show notes if you want to connect with us. And we will definitely do one of these again. So we'll see you in the future. Thank you. So great to meet you, Paul, and see you two again, Jill and Laura. Yes. Same, same, same. Yeah. Thanks, Eric, Laura, and Jill. Great stuff. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Eric from the One You Feed podcast and Laura Cathart, author of the book Stash. I myself. Thank you, Gil, from the Sober Powered Podcast for putting that together. I first heard the term light workers or light warriors when I attended a plant medicine retreat in 2018, and I wasn't too sure what I was being called, but now I get it. This is a group of people who have dedicated their lives to using their personal struggles to A, better themselves, and then to empower other people. All of them are propelled by the vibrational frequency of love. These are people who are moving humanity closer to wholeness and unity, opposed to tearing it apart one self-loathing comment at a time. 
probably saw this one coming. I'm going to call you light workers and light warriors as well, because absolutely 100% that's what you are. That's who you are. You are listening to better yourself. Therefore we can help our fellow neighbor recovery elevator. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Mm-hmm.